and welcome back to the Dakota Student Podcast. I'm your host, Mason, and today I'm joined with Claire and Ben. And today we'll be discussing uh, climate change and everything that revolves around that. How are you guys doing today? Doing really good. Yeah, doing good. All right. On the first topic, let's talk about the pipeline. I guess that's the most recent. Start off strong. Start off strong. I know uh, we talked about it in earlier podcasts, but what are you guys thinking? I know we're seeing gas prices get even higher. Last time I checked, it was like 280 or so. What are your thoughts on that? You're complaining about gas prices. Oh, yeah. You want to know what I drive? (laughs) The Midwest gets spoiled with how much you get with what you pay for gas. Yeah. How much are you paying for gas right now? Um, $3.25 a gallon. Whoa. Okay, yeah, that is more expensive. All right, Whoa. okay. So what are your You're thoughts, Washington ben? State. Yes, but we also pay like... I was going to say, I was always told to statistically, my hometown is one of the more expensive places for gas within, you know, the continental 48 because um, we produce a ton of oil, but it has to go down to all the refineries and, you know, like Houston and those areas and it has to come back up. And then like, it's not on a direct pipeline or anything like that. and has to be, you know, trucked out to where I am. So you're in Minnesota, right? No, I'm, I'm from North Dakota. Okay. So North Dakota, uh, has actually got one of the lowest gas tax rates at 23 cents. Been lied to. Oh, that's just a gas tax though. And that does that doesn't include the federal gas tax of eighteen point four cents a gallon. In Washington, we pay about forty nine cents of tax a gallon before the federal tax. All right, well, that's so, a little pricey. That I got a question for both of you. Okay, mm-hmm. can we put the blame purely on Biden for the increase in gas price, or is there some other factors going into this? What do you guys think? I think there's other factors into this. Is the world production of oil slowing down? I haven't heard anything like that. Well, remember if you remember uh, a year ago, we were talking about when oil went negative. Yeah. I wonder if we're finally at the point. No, I think we're producing more oil. Obviously, our comparison to a year ago and everything's going negative there. But I saw a number the other day for what North Dakota was producing. Shoot, I can't remember now. Sorry. So we are on the crude on the crude oils. We're doing. For context, one year ago, um, we were doing 83, it uh, looks like worldwide was doing about 82 million barrels of oil a day. And the pandemic mm-hmm. in May, that went down to 71 million barrels a day. Um, and they don't have the most recent numbers. But in November, we were back up to 75 million barrels a day. So are we thinking with, you know, things, I, I shouldn't say starting getting back to normal, but somewhat you know, people might be returned to work. Is that what's causing the demand to go up, thus increasing the price or what else? I think it's the oil companies can charge what they want. Well, yeah. And as we were saying in that one earlier podcast, that with um, pipelines being halting production on those you're looking at transporting by rail which for regions like where i'm at not including the whole gas tax thing where you would be then is when you're transporting by rail it's going to be more expensive and so because they aren't banking on those pipelines you know being available for use or even being able to be used at all you're going to start transitioning that shipping by rail and start uh compensating price wise and raise the price of you want to know what the costs are for transporting oil? Sure. It costs about $5 per barrel of oil to be piped compared to the 10 to $15 a barrel for rail and $20 a barrel by truck. So it was half the cost to do it by the pipeline. Yeah. A quarter of the cost if you're going to have to do it by truck. But yeah, I, I don't think people do it by truck too often. Well, you're going to, no matter what, you have to do some, but some trucking. Oh yeah, of course. Just to get it to gas stations and whatnot. Correct. And you're going to need to do some rail because yeah. you, you've got to, because we're, we've, we're in this whole. Uh, Actually, I don't think you need to do rail. If there's a pipeline in place, you don't need to do rail. Are those numbers for uh, piping like both ways or just one way? Because some of that, some of that oil and gas, like, as I said, being from North Dakota, is getting piped to those refineries and then has to come back Correct. to be used because we can't use crude oil. Correct. oil is not usable. And these all these numbers are also a little old as they came out in 2017. Okay. Here's here is an interesting thing though that this thing said. I don't who knows. I don't know if it's still true now, but 
it said uh, back then that rail is the fastest way to transport oil across large distances. So you go from uh, the Balkan field in North Dakota down to the Gulf Coast, it takes five to seven days by rail compared to 40 days by pipeline. I wonder what pipeline that, yeah, I don't think that would be true anymore. I don't know what pipeline that's calculated off of because you remember when uh, we wanted the pipeline to go through the Native American reservation and um, shoot, what's, what's the pipeline called? Are they, I don't think it went through. What was it? Um, I Apple. believe it was going through the standing rock reservation, right? Yeah. It was the Dakota access pipeline. I was trying to think of what it, what it was called. Yeah. So if something like that had gone in, I imagine it wouldn't be 40 days. Yeah, but that's a long ways to go from North Dakota down to uh, basically the Gulf Coast. Oh, yeah. No, I know we had also talked about like what oil transportation costs is by freighter. And obviously there's like Gulf freighters, like if you were trying to transport oil, you know, from somewhere on the coast to, you know, the oil refineries in Houston. But even that like Mississippi transportation, like I imagine that's not exactly prime oil transportation routes. So is that certain though, that it takes longer by pipeline? I thought it was the opposite for sure. I might need to do some more research into that. Cause you know, if, if speed comes into play, if trains are faster than the pipeline, I can see some people, going for trains instead just because you know save time you save money and people love saving money but are you saving money if we said that it was you know 10 to 15 dollars per barrel and then you're looking at five by pipeline it depends on how much more profit they can get out of that time Mm -hmm. i don't know the big issue with oil is you've also got what if you have a leak Mm -hmm. and if you think about it there there's a few ways you can look at it a tanker truck's got maybe 70,000 pounds of oil on it at the most or something, whatever the their DOT maximum is. They're going to be the smallest amount of oil possible to have an impact. Then you have the train car, which then you then you have each train car's capacity for oil. Um, I'm not sure what that number is. I would think that it would be more than what a truck would be able to carry. And then you've got the pipeline, which is basically just a big fat tube of oil. If you were to have an oil spill, because with a truck, you have a small amount, a train car, you can have just, it it's, could be isolated to a train car. But with a pipeline, it's just a big tube that oil flows through. So, But even with a pipeline, there's different like stopping points of it. It's not just like a giant straw where if you cut the straw in half, everything goes out. Right. But still. How quickly sh- can you automate something to stop or prevent an oil spill. I'm sure they have systems in place to stop a pipeline oil spill. Hopefully. I don't know that for sure. I'm guessing they do. But then you're also talking, where is the oil spilling? Um, Because we we didn't talk about if there's an oil spill like within the Gulf. I mean, think about all those like Don dish soap commercials with little ducks or whatever. And yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. But like, yep. do you really want that spilled in the Gulf of Mexico? Do you want that? I mean, obviously, don't want it spilled anywhere. But is that going to be spilled on Standing Rock Reservation? Is that going to be anywhere near a water source? Is the stopping? Say you do an oil spill by rail. Does how long does that stop and halt production? Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many questions that go into all of that. Well, the largest marine oil spill is that Deepwater Horizon um, oil spill. That was an offshore oil rig, though. Correct. That did 4.9 million barrels of oil. Tons, yeah. That's a lot. That's North Dakota is currently producing about 1 million barrels of oil a day, so that's about five days' worth of oil in North Dakota. Yeah, that's a whole other topic, though, you know, the environmental impacts of offshore oil. Or, yeah, but when they do, you know, it's not a small accident. Somewhat small, I guess. So it looks like there's a... Some pipeline oil spills. Yeah, it looks like the most recent ones are from pipelines. But you also got to think that we've also... I'm actually kind of amazed about how many pipeline spills there are, especially in North Dakota. Well, yes, keep going. Hit us with the numbers. Uh, There's been 11 since 2014. Since 2016, there's been around seven or so. That's not a lot. The biggest one being... 
the 2020 colonial pipeline. This was gasoline. So that's what I had been after crude oil. 38,000 tons of gasoline. Oh, one ton roughly equals uh, 308 U.S. gallons. A barrel is either 42 U.S. gallons, 59 liters, or 35 imperial gallons. Actually, Mason, according to Wikipedia, which is not a great source, it says that it really started in like 2017. And even then, it's halfway through 2017. Commercially operational, June 1st, 2017. What was? The Dakota Access Pipeline. Oh, yeah. And it was... I like how every time there's a Russian oil spill, the amount is just unknown. <laughs> unknown. They don't. They don't want to tell us. Doesn't. Doesn't matter. None of your business. <laughs> As we progress our technology with pipelines, I'm hoping they add more safeguards. You know, like emergency shutoffs. I don't even know if that's possible, but I feel like there's some way to implement a valve system into the pipeline mm-hmm. to just. I would. Load. I would think that all of these things have check valves in them to begin with. Yeah. It's a matter of how automated they can be. Because as you had said, with the um, horizon oil spill, if that's you know due to human error, as you had said, how much can you automate it to recognize a leak, a spill, and shut it off as quickly as possible? Because that would be way faster than anything you or I could ever be trained to do. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like, I think that's the only way we're going to start seeing less accidents, get humans out of there. We are, <laughs> I'm a human. I think that goes without saying, but um, we're not I the don't best. Know. That's debatable. <laughs> we are not the best at stuff. We, uh, we have errors, faults. And uh, I don't know, the oil industry is one where we don't, we, we can't really afford to have these types of disasters. In an environmental sense and, uh, I don't know, oil producing sustainability sense. It's just a waste. Yep. All right, let's shift on a little bit. Some more recent news. We have the Paris Accord and Biden rejoining it. What do you guys think about that? From my understanding of the Paris Climate Accords, in theory, it sounds great. And the U.S. being number two behind China for CO2 emissions. But it doesn't really sound like China has to do a whole lot to cut back. Not that the U.S. shouldn't be doing their part, but uh, binding us into something to make us look good and not actually taking into account actual environmental impact, I think is kind of stupid. Yeah, I I think that's a a lot of the problems with the world, you know, people focus and I, I understand it. People focus on the U S to be like a leader and all this new stuff. I, I say new, this has been going on for decades, but you know, a leader in sustainability. And it's, it's hard when we are getting, when we're not even like the main problem, China is the main problem in almost every category relating to pollution, CO2 emissions, garbage, everything. and. You know, it's hard to do anything without the the leading problem being solved, you know? Yeah, and then how do you... The U.S. obviously has a rich history of interfering in other countries' politics, but how do you, how do you incentivize another country to, that is the problem to fix the problem, you know? Um, it's hard to do, too. Yeah. I mean, I don't see a great, great way to get China to be like, just kidding. We will cut back on CO2 emissions when it's so profitable for them. So, You know, I think, I don't know how much you guys have looked into desertification, the process of making a desert, um, but China is experiencing a lot of that. A lot of their lands are becoming deserts from overgrazing and whatnot. So I think they'll start realizing their problems. Hopefully, that's my hope. You know, it's going to hit them in the face. That's that's the main way we solve problems when we get hit in the face by them. Um, so I'm hoping that happens. You know, that's kind of bad to say, but something needs to happen. One of my biggest concerns is as we start seeing, you know, what we consider third world countries start being developed. It's it's not going to be pretty. 
you know, when, when a country goes through an industrial boom, that's like the biggest producer of emissions and garbage and everything. So. Yeah. So in theory, having, as you had said, if the U S is supposed to be a leader in some of those environmental discussions, if we can set a framework for making environmentally uh, less impactful systems, then we can have those in place and ready to go for other countries so they can not have to do what we do. I feel so like how, do a, make, how do you make those things environmentally uh, sound and economically successful? Because as we just said with China, they're making tons of money off of doing things the way they're doing them. So I think that's going to be the biggest factor, making them you know economically sound. It's it's gonna be hard for a developing country to think about all this environmental safety stuff when they're developing. They're they're trying to make more money, not just spend more money. So it's I don't know. It's a rough place. It is a rough place, especially with yeah, have you guys ever heard of the about of like the London smog problem when they were going through the Industrial Revolution? Not I remember hearing a little bit about it. I'm pretty sure there was a period of time where you you couldn't even breathe in London because there was so much industry happening. And uh, we we didn't focus on those environmental problems when we were advancing. I don't think other people will as well. Even if we have those safeguards in place with all our new tech, that stuff costs money and money runs the world. I don't know. You know that only happened in 1952, right? Yeah. I'd say the big bulk of industry though happened before that, you know, the you know, factories were starting to be a thing. It sounds like though it was truly a perfect storm that happened because if you remember the UK used coal to do a lot for lots of things back then. So they had coal powered uh, electrical plants and coal is not the most environmentally friendly of the power fuel sources. Um, and then they just happened to have weather that blew it up. Uh, the weather and then it just got trapped to make the, the the fog and that's kind of what it looks like how it happened it was a perfect storm kind of but still you think about it it's like when you when you think of when you're starting at doing um like electric electricity and stuff what do you think about your first what you the progression is you start with coal then you maybe go to oil then you maybe one of the dirtiest forms of pollution Whereas the oil and gases are just are slightly better. So how are you supposed to do that when you need to be at a certain meet a certain environmental uh, standpoint? So what do we think is the best option for these developing countries? I don't think it's nuclear. Nuclear is. No, it's not nuclear. That's <laughs> incredibly expensive. You have to be in the right region. Uh, no one really knows what they're doing. Well, not, not necessarily. Not the point. Um, I think with more advancements to solar, solar is going to be a top contender. Solar will be. I don't think wind power will be. the. Wind power is going to be one of those, a very challenging piece to use for electricity because you've got to have wind. If you don't have wind, you don't have any power. And as we've said, electricity is really hard to store if basically at all. So you have to use it. It's not like, oh, it's not windy today. Good thing we have something saved up. <laughs> yeah. Don't work like that. I'm not a big fan of wind. I think wind is overrated just because of how much goes into it. You know, all the stuff produce these large windmills. The windmill blades go out after a certain number of years. Have you seen um, them transporting the blades? Yeah. Like on the highways? They're massive. And They're I mean, huge. as you said... To transport something like that is incredibly expensive. Um, so is it really cost efficient? Not to mention, to be honest, you know, a blade being replaced every couple of years by truck is probably not that big of an environmental impact. But still, you don't, that's expensive nonetheless. And that's using oil and all the other um, non-renewable resources. I don't think wind's the way to go either. My personal guess is hydroelectric stuff, but uh, yeah, that only works unless you, you're you you have issues with that as well. Like, what if you what if you're on a river where fish are where fish were born? Mm-hmm. Now you could be stopping that fish lifespan of um, 
I hydroelectrics a very cool technology. Um, and the issue is though, you have to have a, a river for it to work on. You can't just mm-hmm. put it anywhere. Yeah. So. I think it's the most environmentally sound as well. I think hydropower is, you know, the best bet if you can, if you can go for it, <laughs> but if you can't, then, you know, what do you do? Solar is great, except for the land usage. It takes up tons of land in order to get something that's actually efficient and capable of producing enough power. But I don't know. I I feel like they have land in developing countries. I feel like there's no real shortage, Ah, except for, I shouldn't say that. Yeah, I don't know. What about India? What would India do? But even if you were in India, we will take India as your example. I think they have a pretty intense river system there, though. That that would be my argument. Yeah, I think India may be good for the water, for that hydroelectric. But yeah. it, all, it depends on, do they have the uh, space for it? India is a very densely packed country. So something, when I, when I originally toured UND, I started in chemical engineering and I met with one of the top chemical engineering professors within the program. And he was showing me around some of the research he was doing here at UND. And a lot of it involved around growing algae in a dark room. So basically like you get like enough micro evolution so that the amount of light they get, obviously they do need some light to grow photosynthesis and all that, but to limit that light, so you wouldn't be paying to power light sources for, you know, these tanks of algae to be growing because they produce glucose, which can also be used as fuel sources. I quickly was looking for some of his research paper research papers got a ton out there are you talking about the uh algae biofuel yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that uh that stuff is pretty amazing at what they can do with uh the algae biofuel and especially considering that you get the same output of power from the engine while you also produce less uh carbon emissions at the exact same time and you're and you're not relying as heavily on uh, actually crude oil. Now, the we're still in the phase of where we're doing like 50-50 half biofuel, half condi- uh, regular fuel. But still, we've made lots of progress here in the next bit. Well, I mean, that even brings us into the whole ethanol argument, too, that we had thought about discussing. Because, yeah, ethanol as a potential biofuel sounds really great. And to an extent it is good because it has high octane levels, which obviously helps with the ignition of gas, which is why it's included, but it's not actually that great of a fuel source. Um, people who, you know, had said, Oh, I'm so excited to get, you know, the 85% ethanol, 15% gas blends. Those like your miles per gallon for your car goes down approximately 30%, although it is cheaper to use. Yeah. Not, not the dream. I think the big push for ethanol is just sustainability. You know, we can grow corn. We can't mm-hmm. grow oil. But um, yeah, I don't think it's great for energy. I don't think you get great returns. Um, so this is someone they had tested. They, t- they tried E85 in a 2007 Chevy Tahoe. Um, that was a long-term fleet vehicle. It's like they went from San Diego to, to Vegas on the first time they did it on gasoline they got 18 miles to the gallon on e85 they got 12 miles to the gallon yeah so once again you know about 30 percent decrease on that miles per gallon right yes and that would be 30 sorry so (laughs) and at the so here was the thing so at the time they did it um they spent $124 um, for the for gas, and the gas was $3.42 a gallon. On E85, oh, oh and, and for that trip, for the San Diego to Vegas trip, they used 36 and a half gallons of gas. When they did the return trip on E85, they used 50 gallons of E85, costing $154.29, with the average price of $3.09 a gallon. So you're basically paying more and you now have to use more fuel than what you did had to use before. 
yeah, it's, it's more expensive. And I think even the production of ethanol is pretty expensive. Like, shoot, I have to get more information on that. But I think part of the reason why people do like the idea of ethanol is because it does promote domestic production of corn. Whereas, I mean, we do buy oil from other countries. So if you're keeping it within the U.S., that sounds nice politically. And I mean, it is good. It keeps the economy moving within our own country. But another thing about ethanol that might actually be the same problem with any of the algae fuel that we were talking about is ethanol is water soluble, whereas gasoline is not. So that actually puts different contaminants like from the air into your fuel and then can damage your engine. So I I don't know offhand if the algae stuff's going to be water soluble. Pretty high chance it is. I don't see why it wouldn't be. So that would be another issue there. If you are creating engines that can handle that and how do you produce that environmentally sound? Yeah. <sighs> One big complex problem. Yeah, but do we also look at the fact of if you're to look at how the country is all split up, the largest chunk of land that is actually used in our, in the U.S. is for cow pasture slash range. That makes up the largest chunk of land in the U.S. Yeah, because we like our steaks, Ben. What's wrong with it, huh? <laughs> Yeah, well, but they also they require the most land per they require the most production. land. They make a lot of methane. You know, I had this okay, this was one of my discussion posts for my strategic management class. Uh-huh. And it was on um alternative proteins. I wrote that insects would be our future. Insects. Insects. Okay. In, in terms of answer. in terms of energy conversion, uh Insects are the best, you know, for getting protein out and what you put in. It's it's the best for land usage. It's the best for emissions. They're the best. So what do you guys think with that? Can you see us developing a taste for uh, crickets? No, 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 <laughs> no. Ben was quick on that. Okay. <laughs> well, what are some other options? <laughs> uh, mealworms. Nope. That's a big one. I've actually had insects before. I up. think I could get behind mealworms, though, before I could get behind crickets. Let's be real. I don't know. Imagine instead of your instead of your potato chips, your nasty potato chips full of grease, you you snack on some nice crunchy crickets. Nope. I will gladly <laughs> I will gladly pay whatever I have to pay to eat a potato chip compared to eating a cricket or a mealworm or whatever. You just compared starches to proteins. Don't care. But, <laughs> yeah, I did, but the texture would be the same kind of. Okay, but if so, let so you could compare. Would you rather have your walk? You've walked up to McDonald. You, you know, you've walked up to Burger. Beef jerky versus crickets, dried crickets. That's beef jerky all the way. I but know. Let, I, I let, agree. Let me go back to what I was saying. So you what? go up to Mason. So you walk up to McDonald uh, to Burger <laughs> King. They have a Whopper, the Impossible Whopper. And the cropper. <laughs> Which of those three would you buy? I don't know. How good is the cropper? <laughs> I don't know. You you said you can make crickets into protein. They are, yeah, you can. I'm sure you could do a cricket burger. Cropper. I'm cropper. How's so you rolling? <laughs> um, I don't know. What do you think about that argument, though? As the population continues to grow, how are we going to sustain that? You know, we take up too much land with all our cattle. How how do we sustain the population while being environmentally friendly? I, so, I don't know how much when you guys you're talking about when we talk about food in general, once we start cooking things, particularly vegetables, you lose a lot of those nutrients. So, obviously, I have a good feeling we're not going to be eating these crickets raw. Sure, hope not. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> But is there any way that you can like powderize them and yeah. use them as like protein supplements? Because that's how you make your cropper. And that's gonna match up. With that is what people do. Day. You can make a, a flower out of it, and yeah. Okay, so what if you had your you know cricket production? I don't know your house full of crickets, your factory full of crickets that you just have living and growing and doing their thing in there. 
what happens when the crickets start to get sick? How does that impact us? Because if you have a bunch of crickets in pro- close proximity, how do they come back from disease? How can we control that? Because obviously the same argument would apply within, you know, like poultry or cattle, but I'm going to guess that the genetic mutations in crickets are going to be a lot different and less predictable than they would be in a mammal. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, I don't know. That just come with experience. If people aren't doing it, then it's not advancing. I don't know. I'm guessing they take the same direction they do with chickens though. Very close proximity, you know, severe risk for disease and transmission of said disease. But there are a lot of other factors that can go into crickets. Like I'm pretty sure some fun guy can infect crickets and mm-hmm. really mess well, them up. How do you, I know you and I sometimes have varying uh, degrees of government intervention, but think of like FDA approval on cricket powder. Like how do you, how do you keep that relatively consistent in meeting guidelines? Yeah, I feel like it's less of a I feel like it's less of a government regulatory thing. I feel like in compared to other foods, they'd be just the same. It it's protein, but in a public sense, you know, the public perception of insects, that would be the most difficult part in my opinion. Uh nobody wants to eat bugs. I yeah, I certainly would yeah, Ben doesn't want to. I preferably wouldn't, but if people are true to their sustainability, you know, opinion, and they want a truly sustainable world, they're going to have to explore new proteins. And I don't know how much you've looked into soy farming. Terrible, terrible for the, for the soil. It's, it's terrible. Um, so I, if people truly cared and they're not hypocrites, they're going to look into other options. So it's also interesting. I was looking at uh, different protein stuff um, for for my workouts and I was thinking like, well, I don't really want to like do whey protein because I'm trying to axe like milk and lactose and all that stuff, blah, 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 blah. So I was looking into alternative stuff and soy protein sounds really great, but being female, it really messes with like estrogen levels. So even that isn't necessarily like good for you you know i mean maybe for the environment but maybe not good for me and i a little selfish here i think i i'm gonna pick myself on this one so <laughs> yeah i i i never really understood the whole soy protein tofu trends it's in terms of energy conversion you know by energy conversion i mean what you put in and what you get out it's terrible it uses a ton of water you don't get very many calories protein cal- calorie intake insects it's a whole nother story you put very little in you get a lot out and i don't know it's just it's just a whole matter of public perception of insects i will gladly keep eating a cow until i have to have to stop no thank you for the insects with cows there's a you know i love beef i am a meat eater um but there, there are a lot of valid arguments against the you know, our production of cattle. It's, I don't know how much you guys looked into AOC's Green New Deal. As much as I thought it was idiotic and, you know, absurd, she did have some good points. You know, cows are not the best for the environment. They're not good for the soil. They're not really that great in terms of vent or energy conversion. It just, I don't know. We like to eat it though. So I raised you this though. My grandparents um, ranched in Northern North Dakota. Like you stand on a hill, you see lights in Canada, northern North Dakota. Now there is some oil on their land, um, but they ranch and farm. But for ranching, that's basically what all their land was used for because you can't farm on the rest of that land. Like it's rocky, it's hilly, it is not suitable for farming. So in theory, Yes, it would be nice to farm on that land, but if you don't have cattle on it and it just sits there, what good does it do? Nothing. Um, and my grandparents do have a lot of like uh CRP land where it's like 
basically wildlife refuge stuff and they like don't do anything with it it's a government program um but like the land won't do anything and then you know everyone talks about there's nothing in north dakota okay well then take away that ranching aspect and there really is going to be nothing because you can't because then you get into the conversation of oil again if you're going to put oil uh wells on that land is that environmentally friendly too or else it's literally just going to sit there yeah that's a great point they could farm insects (laughs) (laughs) they don't need that many hundreds and thousands acres to farm crickets (laughs) imagine if they did though that'd be a lot of crickets yeah that is a great point you know it it is it is a matter of economics you know you don't want that land just sitting there not doing anything so why not ranch Oh, it's Something a tough that place. My grandparents have been able to farm, though, in recent years. That is kind of different. Is peas, um, because peas are legumes which put nitrogen back in the soil, so it's good for crop rotation. But peas are also a good source of protein. Back to the protein conversation. Yeah. Um, funny enough, my roommates and I, when we moved into our apartment, we were going to get like, you know, those pre-made burger patties from the frozen section of like Walmart or whatever. And we were just looking price-wise. I don't know. We we pulled out a box and we got back to the apartment and we realized that they were like, you know, an impossible Whopper type of vibe. They're made from pea protein. I'm not going to lie. They weren't half bad. My roommates didn't care for them, but I thought they were fine. So. Yeah, but you probably haven't tried those bean bean burger patties i haven't i'll admit i'm just saying the pea protein that i had in walmart was not half bad are you talking about the bean burger patties from wilkerson no i'm talking about the bean sausage patties that are out there in the wild in the wild (laughs) the wild world of alternative proteins i'm saying i had the bean bean burger patties from wilkerson they weren't great they weren't bad no they didn't look bad i never tried them but they didn't look terrible I don't know. And I will argue that I grew up eating Iowa beef and my grandparents' beef from their ranch slash farm. So I do have opinions on what good beef tastes like. I will should put that out there. So do we have any predictions about the protein of the future? Not crickets? I don't know, Mason. I feel like maybe you are onto something. You've been lighting my mind to cricket farming. Cricket ranching? Cricket, yeah, cricket ranching. I don't know. Cropper. I'm not over the cropper then. That was good. <laughs> Maybe I should get that trademark before Burger King does. Do it. Do it. Could you, so say if, you know, we were the generation to start eating insects, do you think we'd be able to pass it on to our kids and that would actually start being a thing? I know other culture, cultures around the world, specifically Asia. I'm pretty sure Asian has a decent insect market. I think, um, you know, we're eating insects isn't really a crazy idea. I, I think we could instill it on future generations. What do you guys think? Ben's nope. I already know no. what he's thinking. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, I guess once again, from an economic standpoint, what types of systems are in place? This is obviously not the capital startup required for like oil processing, but what type of system is in place to make that affordable to the average consumer as well as, as we said. Okay. Well, basically I think that you need a system in place to produce it and make it available in products that we'd use every day. So that's my argument for it. I don't think that's quite there yet. Who knows how quickly that could be put in place though? Cause it's not the same capital startup as oil production. Yeah. I don't know. I guess we'll have to look to the future. Maybe we'll be eating crickets and we're going to have to have a cricket talks in a decade or so on Mars, huh? Maybe. (laughs) Who knows? All right. How about, uh, you know, since we're on, since I just brought up Mars, you know, Elon Musk always associated with that and Tesla. Let's talk about the sustainability of producing batteries. I know that's been a big topic, you know, lithium, nickel, whatnot. My biggest concern with that, and I guess with a lot of things, is how do we dispose of it i know isn't there a big market for recycling batteries i think that's the preferred method the preferred market would be to recycle batteries in practice though it's not the most simple thing to do because 
the, a battery has a finite lifespan to begin with. And once that lifespan is pretty much used, the battery's pretty much done. There's not much, you can't really do much to get a battery charged again. Uh, you basically get to destroy it and start over. And the issue with a lot of these batteries, manu- the, the, issue, the issue with battery manufacturing is it's not the most cleanest production out there in the world. Uh, uh, there was an article written many years ago where um, it was written back in 2007 and compared a, a, a Prius to the Hummer. And the article basically explained that a Prius at the time would cost on average uh, about $3.25 per mile when it's driven over a lifetime of 100,000 miles than the expected lifespan of a Prius. Compared to, compared to the other hand, that Hummer H2 would only cost $1.95 per mile over 300,000 miles. And that and that those numbers, for for example, did not happen to come into effect with it all disposing of the batteries. The issue is currently we're still at the time frame of we aren't 100 percent ready to start disposing them, but we're getting soon to where we get we're going to have to start disposing of these batteries because their usable lifespan is completely up. And I think a big, you know, focus of this conversation, we're not going to be slowing down our battery production anytime soon. We're only going to be increasing that into the future. And hopefully the methods of producing those batteries gets better, but I don't know. It's a dirty process. I don't think it's going to get much cleaner. I don't think it's going to get much cleaner either. Um, there was actually in this article they talk about uh, they do a lot of the nick in this time they were using nickel in the batteries for a Prius um, and they were talking about how the area where they were doing this in Canada been damaged by the environment so much that NASA uses it as a dead zone it doesn't have any plant life for miles around the area well this all it's not like it was the most efficient thing anyway because you have to first mine the nickel in Canada then it's sent to a refinery in Europe, then off to China, and then it's finally sent into the battery. So in order to do it, you have to send basically all the products around the world just to get it into the car. Um, They also found out that it takes about 50% more energy to drive and build a Prius than what it took to build and drive a Hummer. Everyone knew the Hummer was not the most environmentally friendly car to begin with. What happens to a Tesla after its battery pack is done? Sorry that not really too relevant but you know the battery pack underneath that tesla is like the whole tesla basically right and can they replace that i'm assuming you can replace that but you can replace it in the car the question is what do they do after they ripped it out of the car yeah i don't know what the disposal method is i don't know how much they can reuse of that so you were talking about how like mining nickel and refining it is such a dirty process. Well, right now, switching into the lithium ion batteries being used in Teslas, those are all mined. Like in order to dope the battery for lithium ion, you need certain like rare earth metals. And they're mostly mined in surprise, China. Bring us back to Paris Climate Accords. So I mean, how do you how do you get those? Apparently, there were my chem prof is telling me, uh, gee, a couple of semesters ago about how there used to be mines for those things in California, but they've since been shut down because it is, yeah, it's been closed. Here's my here's my article. Closed since 2002 because it's not environmentally friendly at all. Because to get those rare earth metals, you're taking out large pieces of ore, but the actual element you're after is in such small trace amounts that in order to get it out, you're basically producing ammonia. So like to process it, which is not good for the environment. I don't know. It's hard. All this is hard. There's no real, there's no good answer. I don't think there will be. And it's only going to get more complicated as we start producing more. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting over the long term of 
of all this. Um, I'd like to see some happen. detailed research into, you know, the actual economic and ecological costs of making a Tesla compared to a normal car. I'm going to call up Elon. Yep. Let us know what he says. You know, my homie Elon, we're such good friends. See, I've, I've paid attention a little bit into the, the whole hydrogen fuel cell um, vehicles. And those, I think, are going to be truly the future for yeah, cars. Yeah, they might be. Because have you looked much into them, Mason? Uh, not really into them being used for, you know, a car, but I know the viability of hydrogen. Uh, they're actually, their their outputs are, it, it basically produces no emissions because all it is is produ- it produces uh, uh, water out of the back of the car. So it's actually one of the most clean, cleanest cars you could possibly have. Whereas like all the, everyone thinks these electric cars are so clean, but how are we powering these, these cars with a gas powered power plant? So the numbers I'm seeing for all life expectancy of those batteries is a lot of the warranties say they'll last for minimum of eight years or up to a hundred thousand miles. Okay. So we're about right for the initial round of Model S's to have their battery pack basically be done in their time span. I'm not, I'm not saying in the mileage time. And this article is from 2020. So who knows what the lifespan of those batteries, how that has ch- since changed since their initial production in 2012. Yeah. I don't know. Only time will tell with all things. Well, while we're on the topic of uh, disposing nasty stuff, let's talk a little bit about garbage. What do you guys think about, uh, you know, a big topic of mine. I know Ben, we talked about this last year, I believe was recycling glass and all that. I think we, we need to start recycling glass for one. We know the thing about glass, what I find kind of interesting, you know, Glass making sand, fine glass making sand is not indefinite. You know, it's not sustainable. We're going to run out of that. So if we don't start recycling glass, we're not going to have glass in the future. What are your guys' thoughts on that? It's hard to imagine a time where you wouldn't have basically sand to produce glass. But, I mean, you're right. It isn't, it's not a renewable resource. And think about how many other things take up sand, specifically concrete production, which takes up a ton. I don't know how much you guys have looked into concrete production. Well, you know, it kind of relates to pollution because it's not a a clean process and it uses up a ton of sand. It's weird to think though, that sand's going to run out eventually. It will, especially like river sand, you know, nice rounded, not sharp edges. Sounds silly, but what's the production rate of? I don't want to say sand, but I mean, rocks still will break down and create sand, but at the same time, you mean eventually you're you're done. Um, it's not a quick process of no, it's not. I'm just no, <laughs> I'm sure there are going to be ways to you know do it ourselves. I'm sure people are already making sand by just by crushing rocks, but um, getting getting that sand to be rounded instead of sharp edged is actually an important factor in, you know, concrete and in glass blowing. Oh yeah, totally. It's, um, it's definitely something where we have to look at different ways. It was like, there's that, uh, ad right now it's Coca-Cola, uh, curing Dr. Pepper. Who's the other big drinks company where they are actually all working together to remake, to make uh, the plastic drinking bottles, and we'll step away from glass for a second, but the plastic drinking bottles fully recyclable so that way they can reuse them. I think that's actually truly one of the, the best ideas out there because we use a whole bunch of plastic. You might as well have everyone working together on this to reach a common goal. Mm-hmm. I feel like we hardly recycle anything though. <laughs> That's just, uh, maybe that's, you know, U.S. specific, but. I think yeah, it depends I on, it. I think it depends on region to region. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think there's a lot of people who, a lot of areas where recycling is a big thing. And then there's other parts where no one thinks about recycling. 
Mm-hmm. When I lived in Iowa, I lived in a developing suburb. And so when I was little, I'd ride my bike and take a giant garbage bag with me. And I'd like pick up all of the aluminum cans and soda bottles left behind by like construction workers because you could just put them in a the little machine at the grocery store. And that's how I made like my pocket money. I mean, it was like five cents per, you know, bottle can type of thing. But I mean, I had fun with that. That's when I was in Iowa here. We don't recycle, so. Well, also, not all states do that program where you can recycle stuff and get money for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always printed on the bottles of a different state. But the the thing is, when you buy the bottle from those areas, you pay for that money. Oh, yeah. All you're doing is you're just getting your money back after you've, oh, you've, uh, that you basically prepaid to say, yes, I will return this bottle. Okay, but six-year-old Claire, who was not currently buying her own soda, was pretty hype. Not gonna I, lie. I feel like each state should do that, though. I don't, I don't know why each state doesn't. Five cents for a bottle? Like, are you really losing that much money? No. No. And, and it would give some incentive. Yeah, and you know what? There's a lot of people who don't do it. There's a lot of areas where recycling is not that big of a deal. Like I'm noticing at least in Grand Forge, recycling is a very small portion. Like I don't even see any like recycle bins. Around. I think at Grand Forks you have to pay to recycle. I think that's a, a separate thing with your garbage. You need to pay for the recycling service. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's wild to me. You know, I, I saw the reason why I bring this up. I saw people put the recyclables in a little bin, you know, mm-hmm. and then they come get it on certain days. So I tried doing that, not knowing you needed to subscribe to the service. I put all my recyclables out there and they didn't take it. So I, I called them asking why. And that's how I found out. I don't know. That's just wild to me. Why would you have to pay to recycle? <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's, uh, it takes a lot of man, uh, it takes a lot of labor to do it. Well, if you have to pay to do it, no one's going to do it. There's no incentive to do it. You're actually, except for your own, you know, personal desire to recycle. Someone who's stringent on money is not going to pay to recycle. Yeah. I guess until recycling is a profitable enough industry in itself, that it's think of like a thrift store, you know, like you're not going to pay a thrift store to take your clothes, right? You don't want to pay the recycling company to take your glass, your paper, whatever. But if they can make enough money off of it, like a thrift store, they'll just take it for free, regardless of condition. And you don't have to pay them to take it. Right. right. Well, and, and then usually you are able to get um, if you depending on how you do your taxes, you're able to get uh, uh, basically uh, a refund for it in most places. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting thing we're going with that is out there with all this environmental issues. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we don't end up like Wally, huh? I mean, Wally's a great movie. Let's <laughs> not end up like Wally. Nope. I think on that note, that'll be all for the Dakota Student Podcast today. Thank you for tuning in and listening to uh, about our climate change slash garbage discussion. Hope you enjoyed and uh, stay safe out there. Thanks and have a good one.